So today's topic, um, I've picked sexual harassment because I feel like I have been doing nothing else <laughs> but deal with sexual harassment cases since about September, October time. It's often the way with what I do that you get things that come along like a bit like a bus, you know, a number of buses all at the same time. So I might go a while where I haven't done a mediation for a little bit, a little while, and then I'll get three all at the same time. Um, but this does seem to be a bit different. It seems to be that everyone I speak to is having to investigate or, or deal with this sort of issue. So it's made me reflect on why might that be? Is it that everybody has just forgotten how to behave whilst we were in lockdown and has uh, perhaps lost some of the boundaries that maybe were there originally in the workplace? And are they just behaving uh, badly because of that? Or is there something else going on? Certainly we've had the Me Too campaign that got a lot of publicity and brought the issue to a lot of people's attention. And I know it was something that the CIPD uh, did a whole issue on. Um, and, you know, there's been lots of discussion around, do we do enough training, for example, in our organisations on that topic as a result? I think flowing from that, the greater awareness of, of the subject means that people are more likely to talk about it, which means people are then more likely to complain about it as well if they spot something. So we're seeing the kind of uh, ramifications of that start flowing through uh, into what's happening on, on the ground. I think we've also got a generation, uh, particularly of young women, in the workplace whose attitudes are quite different to those in some of the older generations that are now also in the workplace. Um, to put it frankly, I think there are a whole generation of ladies who just are not willing to put up with this anymore and will call it out when they see it. And they will expect their employer to do something about it, as perhaps rightly they should. So there's been that kind of generational shift going on, I think. I think there are men in the workplace who are much more attuned to the issue. And again, are more likely to call out a problem if they see it. Um, there are a lot more men who think about you know, I've got daughters of this age or, you know, this could be my sister or my partner. So if I see something that isn't appropriate, I'm going to I'm going to do something about it rather than perhaps just keeping quiet. And I'm seeing a lot more men in positions of power who are quicker to recognise that there's an issue and a willingness to maybe tackle behaviours and do something about it. Whereas perhaps in the past, if I was going to make a huge generalisation, there might have been more of an attempt to perhaps try and sweep something under a carpet. 
For a long time, we've had employers saying, you know, zero tolerance policy applies. That's what our paperwork says. But actually, were we living and breathing that in our organisations on a day to day basis? Or was it just a policy, you know, propping up a, a, a table leg somewhere? I think organisations as a result of Me Too, as a result of discussions that have happened, uh, around that are much more likely to try and live that zero tolerance statement that they have made uh, now than in the past. And we, we talked about ESG uh, a few sessions ago. Um, even this morning, I've seen uh, some of the paperwork that the banking institutions have to um, comply with the weaving in of diversity and inclusion um, to that regime, we're now starting to see regulators take this issue uh, very, very seriously. So, for example, in my own profession, um, there is a solicitor's disciplinary tribunal on at the moment that centres around the issue of sexual harassment. And so we're all daily following the news on the latest, you know, gossip, if you like, from that case. Um, but professional bodies are coming out and they're saying to those that they regulate, even what you do in your private lives or what might traditionally have been seen as something outside of the interest of the regulator, if it impinges on um, the workplace, then we're interested and we will stray into that territory and we will fine people and we will punish people if there are problems of that nature. So there's been Sorry, a big shift Anna. there. Yeah. Anna, can I just double check if your slides need to be moving along or is it still on the first slide? It's still on the first slide. OK, mm -hmm. fine. I just wanted to check yeah. your screen isn't frozen or anything. Yeah, no, I can, uh, I can move on to that one. So, yeah, this so, is what I'm yeah. just talking about. Awesome. Um, yeah, so lots of kind of shifting tectonic plates in this area. Um, one of the challenges that we can talk about this morning is always around evidence. And ultimately, if you are ever having to do an investigation into this area, then that's what you're looking for is evidence. Um, and in the past, maybe there was an attitude that unless we could prove something to the kind of criminal standard of beyond all reasonable doubt that something happened, um, people would shy away from a finding that there had been a problem. Um, of course, the civil burden of proof applies in the employment arena. So we're not looking to prove something beyond all reasonable doubt. We're looking at what do we reasonably believe happened here? And I think people are much more likely to tap into circumstantial evidence, if you like, now. So give you an example. You might have a complainant alleging that something happened, uh, a particular event, let's say that they were touched on their knee uh, and that, that that was inappropriate. 
in the past we might have focused on whether or not anyone else saw that happen um because if the person who is supposedly the protagonist uh says no i didn't then perhaps we're we're stuck in a well he said she said um i think now there's a wider understanding of the the subject area and people would be much more inclined to say well nobody witnessed that but this person over there this witness said that you put your hand on their knee earlier in the evening and when we think about who do we then believe we might say well this person has clearly been doing that kind of thing to other people therefore uh, we're going to believe this complainant um, when they say that that happened so I think people are being a bit more um, broad if you like when when looking at uh, the evidence as well in terms of um, stats uh, I don't particularly have sort of uh, stats on uh, sexual harassment other than that anecdotal evidence of I've had a lot of issues running from, you know, quite low level stuff right the way up to quite serious um, physical assaults. But I do have some stats around relationships at work. And it's estimated that 13 percent of people have affairs in the workplace. A quarter of all people date somebody or are involved with somebody sort of officially from in the workplace. And of course, those relationships can break down. And sometimes that then leads to complaints of sexual harassment um, coming coming out of that. Uh, the newsworthy item um on that subject recently was uh to do with mcdonald's ceo who was fired for violating their corporate policy um in this area and of course um mcdonald's have also had to sign an agreement with the equality uh, and human rights commission um around what actions they're going to take to reduce the problem within that structure. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of franchises in the McDonald's structure, um, so they're not all the same employer, but the number of complaints that the CHR was getting, or trade, trade unions were getting um, from within that organisation was telling them that there was a widespread sort of endemic problem, um, hence the intervention of our uh, authority in the UK that has powers to take enforcement action around those things. And I'll come on to a little bit more about that at the end. But yeah, I've certainly had the sort of relationship breakdown turn messy um, in the past. Uh, there was even an example on Valentine's Day, I don't know if you caught it, in people management where um, somebody had had to deal with four employees in two departments um, where um, there had been very entwined uh, relationships um, and had had to try and deal with the break 
the breakdown of that. So it is something that that we um, we that we come across. I think cases are hard. Um, why is that? Well, emotions are going to run very high. One of the things that I've been seeing in some of the uh, cases that I've been dealing with since September has been perhaps, again, a generational shift in attitude where complainants are incredibly angry about what's happened. Um, almost a, I'm not going to settle for anything less than this person's head on a plate kind of attitude. So we have to we have to bear that one in mind. Um, we have got the potential overlap with the criminal law. I mentioned uh, that I'd been dealing with one case that certainly fell into the potentially criminal assault um, area. Um, so we'll talk about the involvement of the police in a few moments. Of course, it's an area where the discrimination law applies. So straight away, people are thinking injury to feelings awards. Obviously, the maximum now is £49,300 for injury to feelings. Um, that is the exception to get that high. There are very few cases that get into that territory. Um, but you're likely to have a solicitor or a representative um, arguing for quite high uh damages in this area for obvious reasons um you're much more likely to persuade a judge of injured feelings when it comes to harassment compared to perhaps other acts of discrimination i think one of the challenges that we have in these cases can be around um sometimes people don't complain straight away about something. There can be good reasons why people don't raise something at the time that it happens. People will talk about, I didn't raise something at the time because I thought I could um, get the situation to stop, or um, I was afraid for my job position or that I wouldn't get the promotion that I was going for. Um, sometimes it will only be when the structure changes in the organisation that people will then feel safe to complain about something. So I've certainly had um, complaints in the past where, for example, both uh, an individual and her partner worked in an organisation, so their mortgage was entirely dependent on that particular company. That person didn't raise a problem at the time. Um, but of course, once one of them had gone off and got a job somewhere else, felt then safe to come out and talk about what had happened previously. Um, sometimes there can be a kind of tipping point where behaviours that aren't acceptable, that is making somebody feel uncomfortable, have been tolerated or hoped with as best they can. 
And then there is perhaps an escalation in the behaviour or something that tips the person over the edge. So I can remember a case that I dealt with um, probably coming up for about 20 years ago now where um, there'd obviously been putting an arm round, touching somebody's bottom, that kind of behaviour in the workplace. And it was when the protagonist brought a birthday card and a bottle of wine to the person's home that it was the tipping point for them, probably because the boyfriend, you know, found out what had been going on in work and wasn't very happy about it and was saying, you know, you need to do something about this. So there can be a pattern with these sorts of issues where you don't necessarily get to know about stuff straight away. Um, just because it did happen a while ago doesn't mean that, um, you know, we don't have to deal with uh the issues sorry anna i've just got a question in the chat box do you want me yeah. to read out as they come through or save them to the yeah. end yeah go on cool yeah so i've just got a question from julie um saying where there is an overlap into criminal law is it the employee's responsibility to notify the police or the employers um so it's it's a choice for the individual to to make the that complaint yeah 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 i mean as an employer we can, if we think there has been something that could fall in that territory, we can suggest to the individual that they might want to, to go down that road. Um, but it's a, quite a personal decision as to whether people want to do that or not. Um, what I tend to find is that actually people make a lot of threats about it rather than actually doing it so sometimes as the hr person you're saying to the individual yes absolutely you're entitled to speak to the police if you want to speak to the police you know if you you know we'll cooperate if you do um and almost call their bluff uh about it yeah i think one of the other things that can make it a challenge is that we might be faced with a situation where HR gets whispers of something, gossip, you don't know how much is true or whether it's gossip, um, perhaps you're struggling to actually do something until somebody does complain um, and you might be in the position of actually trying to um, encourage somebody to stick their head above the parapet and, and complain about something so you can do something about it um, rather than just hearing those whispers and, and being in a difficult position of not being able to do anything about it. Um, when it comes to things like suspension and um, risk assessment around that, obviously we we have a kind of higher risk, I suppose, in that in this territory than perhaps in ordinary dis disciplinary circumstances. I'm thinking there of um, the Carl Sargent case. Uh, Carl Sargent, of course, um, wasn't an employee. He was um, in politics, but he was suspended from the Labour Party for 
pending an investigation into this sort of territory and then committed suicide, which, of course, made us all think long and hard about what what we do around suspension, how we risk assess it, how we look after individuals in that process, which we'll probably come on to a little bit uh, later as, as we go along. So I kind of liken perhaps when we get the first um, email or verbal complaint or whatever it is, HR are a little bit rabbits in the headlights um, at that point. And we need to pull a team together quite quickly. So who is going to be the liaison point for the person who's got a complaint? Um, very, very important. Um, they are going to need to be kept up to date with what is going on at all times. You can't do enough communication uh, in these cases. Who's going to be our investigating officer? Who's going to be our decision maker? Who are we keeping free for the appeal? I mean, same things you're going to be thinking about in any situation. Um, have we got our legal advisors on tap uh, so that we aren't uh, frozen in the headlights anymore? Of course, the Equality Act governs harassment, and you'll know that we've got uh, a specific definition of that, which talks about the purpose or effect of violating somebody's uh, dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment, uh, which, you know, there's no ability to justify um, that. I've been talking very much in terms of women bringing complaints thus far. It can work both ways. Uh, there has been the case recently of the gentleman who was bald and he um, complained about treatment he was receiving, jokes and things about his lack of hair, and um, he got the protection of the Equality Act just as much as any lady uh, would. And I'm sure when you're all doing training around this topic, you're constantly speaking to people about, it's not about intention, it's about the effect, uh, and that banter is not a defence in these um, these these circumstances, the other thing that the law tells us is it doesn't have to be directed at somebody. So uh, cases like I don't know a group of men uh, looking at things on WhatsApp or on their computers that they shouldn't be in the workplace, and they're all giggling about it and talking about it, um, a woman in that environment walking past, overhearing, is protected because she can say, um, I know they haven't sent it to me, um, they haven't made me look at it, but that is creating that intimidating, hostile, degrading environment. Section 26 specifically then goes into um, unwanted conduct of a sexual nature uh, and provides greater protection, if you like, for sex harassment, um, where somebody can make a link between the kind of conduct that we're talking about and um, 
and that uh, unwanted environment uh, for them. And like I say, you know, there's a whole spectrum of things that can fall into that. You know, at the, the lower end of the spectrum, you might have somebody making comments about somebody's dress or their appearance of, of the kind that, you know, wouldn't be made um, to, to anybody else. Um, right the way through to more of the sort of touching physical um, aspects um, right the way through to the sort of more serious um, assaults that I talked about. So uh, recently there's been a solicitor who uh, was fined uh, by our regulator but also shamed in front of his professional colleagues in, in the press um, who kept telling a member of staff that he would install a mattress in her room, uh, making sort of suggestive comments around um, around that. Um, there's another, I mentioned a case um, that's going through at the moment of um, a 30 something year old gentleman who used his position of power, because that's often what it's about, uh, over a much more junior 18-year-old female colleague, um, sending her suggestive texts, obviously watching for the reaction to see what reaction there would be when she read or saw whatever it was he had sent her. Um, but it can be, it can be um, unwanted conduct towards men as well. Um, and it can be conduct between same sex individuals that's covered um, as well, not necessarily to do with their sexual orientation. So I have had a case uh, quite a long time ago now of a gentleman who was, let's just say, getting his bits out in the office. Um, that would potentially uh, fall into this area as well. So again, it doesn't need to be directed at somebody. It's about that creation of the intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for, um, for the individual. And what we've seen through the Me Too um, attention has been that discussion of it being an endemic problem as in it can happen anywhere it does happen everywhere um it is linked with casual sexism and a sort of lack of respect but perhaps in the past has been written off as banter um but like i say i am seeing more people in positions of power prepared to attack it and say we're going to do something um, about it. Potentially, if somebody brings a claim, they could issue against the individual for their part in what's gone on, as well as against the employer. Obviously, they're going to go for the employer because they're going to tend to have the big pockets um, compared to the individual. But you do see cases um, where personal liability is found. Um, this was a hairdresser's case. Um, and I think in that particular case, the, the employer put themselves through in order to avoid 
um, liability, but liability was still found against the individual manager. So I quite often use that one in training to bring that home to anyone who might be thinking about misbehaving, realising it can get quite serious um, for them. Of course, the employer is going to potentially be vicariously liable for anything that happens to their staff. And we do have the possibility of saying we've taken all reasonable steps to prevent the harassment from occurring. So uh, training, policies, um, reminding people about um, the training and the policies would all be things that an employer might plead in their defence as showing that they've taken all reasonable steps. But I've said a uh, final bullet on the slides. It's really, really hard to engage that defence. Uh, to a point where I went on a seminar with barristers recently where they were just saying, you know, you can't rely on that as a get out anymore. Um, there was a case a couple of years ago where the employer had put in place training. The individual protagonist had been through that training. Um, but the attitude of the tribunal was, well, your training clearly isn't working, is it? Because it hasn't prevented what we've been listening to from happening. Therefore, um, you know, we're not going to give you that defence. Uh, so it's really hard to get that to um, to be engaged. So you can't just rely on, oh, well, it will be OK. We will have that defence. Worth mentioning the Protection from Harassment Act, um, that kicks in where there's been something on at least two occasions which is calculated to cause distress and is a form of criminal liability, uh, strict liability. We've seen cases where maybe people have been out of time to bring the harassment case through the tribunal system because, of course, you've got to do it within three months of when the act of harassment happened. Uh, there was one case um, that involved harassment in connection with sexual orientation where somebody brought the claim four years later. Um, so this is there's another route, if you like, through the courts that people can use. Um, and we have seen some high damage cases um, when I'm thinking of lady who had a nervous breakdown, so probably wasn't going to work again. Uh, she was awarded £852,000, so quite high um, awards. The courts generally encourage everyone to use the employment tribunals. They're not a big fan of people using that legislation, but it is kind of there for people. The other area that becomes relevant in this sort of case can be where the harassment has come by from somebody else and throughout my 23 I think year career 24 um, whether there's been the ability to bring a claim where it's come from a third party has kind of been in, in and out of fashion throughout that period um, many of you will remember the Bernard Manning case um, where the racist comedian had uh, given us after dinner speech and uh, the question for the law was whether or not the um, people who'd been waitressing and had been offended by what he was saying would be able to bring a claim. 
and the Equality Act originally allowed um, individuals to be able to uh, bring claims where it was harassment from a third party, where the employer knew of um, problems perhaps with an individual or or something like that. Um, that got taken out by the David Cameron government, uh, but it's likely to come back again. So there's a bill going through at the moment, um, which uh, will specifically put it back in. Um, practical reality is that actually, even without it being covered, We've got concepts like trust and confidence in the in the relationship. So sort of if somebody has been subject to something that they shouldn't have been in their work um, context, then they will argue it goes to the relationship with their employer anyway, in terms of um, in terms of trust and confidence. So keep your eye out for that. So I mentioned earlier possible police involvement. I feel, and this is just anecdotal, that the police are much more likely to do something in this territory than they were previously. I don't know whether that's partly because some of the criticism um, around the Met Police and some of the things going on there, um, whether it's as a result of Me Too or, or what's going on, but certainly I've had a number of people recently complained to the police and the police have been all over it. Um, so in one case, the police have approached the employer and said, we understand that you're investigating a, an internal grievance. Will you share your investigation with us? Obviously, there are data protection implications to think about when that happens. And the police do have a form that they uh, make the request of you on that um, tells you what the pathway through the Data Protection Act is uh, around obviously crime prevention. Um, so you just need to make sure that when you receive that, that it's genuine by you know speaking to the particular police officer that's um, been named on it, you know, checking their um, their badge number and, and things like that, um, that that is genuine. So there is there is the safe pathway through. Um, although the ICO does suggest you have a policy as to who would deal with those sorts of disclosures, who would be the person to do those checks and things like that, because, of course, potentially we're into sensitive personal data in old money, special category data in new money, because it's somebody's sexual life potentially that we might be talking about. Um, so we need to have that sort of safe um, pathway uh, through. Um, what It also, the potential to disclose something to the police means that when we're interviewing witnesses, and we're talking about confidentiality, and things like that. We need to manage the expectations of witnesses that when they are giving a statement to us for an internal matter, that those statements could be used in a wider sense. Because, of course, they won't expect 
what they've said to you to perhaps be aired with the police. So it's managing those expectations. And that's one real weakness that I see in how employers investigate issues is the lack of communications or or um, managing of expectations around witnesses. Um, it almost lends itself to a sort of frequently asked questions document that you just routinely give to anyone who's giving a witness statement. Um, so if anyone wants help with that, I can certainly um, I can certainly uh, do that. So, like any grievance, potentially, can we deal with the matter informally? So I've certainly had issues in the last six months where it probably just was a conversation with somebody. You know, how has this come to light? Um, if an individual is, want of a better description, suffering in some way from harassment, what do they want? It's going to be very important. Um, potentially also if you are a regulated um, organisation, you know, what view is your regulator going to take as well? Um, you'll all be used to those conversations that sometimes we have to have with people where we say, I know you're saying you don't want me to do anything about it, but you've shared it with me now. And actually, it's quite a serious thing that you've shared. So I am going to have to do something. Now, that something might not necessarily be betraying the fact that the person has complained. It might be doing something um, without naming them uh, and just having a word in somebody's ear um, about uh, certain behaviour. Because um, sometimes people just want uh, the, the issue to stop. Um, one of the areas that I find employers don't do quickly enough, and this is sort of a general rule of thumb now, is when somebody raises a complaint, get back to them really quickly. We take this seriously. We are going to investigate. This is who's going to be doing it. This is the measures that we're putting in place to protect you. Um, you know, this is the person that you can liaise with from HR. Um, this is what we're going to be doing next. And I think the more communication you can have like that, it can take some of the heat out of the person who feels that they've raised something really, really serious and the employer just isn't doing anything quickly enough um, and are not taking it seriously uh, enough. Now, we mentioned suspension earlier. Um, we need to think about uh, what we're going to do with our alleged perpetrator. And that's where we're into a risk assessment process uh, as regards whether or not suspension is necessary. Now, quite often the complainant will be gunning for this individual and their attitude will be they have to be suspended. Um, but of course, it's not their decision. It's, it's yours. And there might be good reasons why we don't need to suspend. So, for example, in one of the cases that I've been involved in this year, the uh, two individuals who uh, there was something that happened at an out of work event um, did not work together, did not report um, to each other. Um, in work, there was no actual overlap um it was entirely possible to do the investigation without suspension the employer decided uh, for those reasons the important thing is that you document that somewhere 
um, and you're able to explain it to the individual um, because again they they may have that attitude as to why isn't this happening and we need to be able to explain it again if somebody is accused um, they can feel that um, there's sort of no smoke without fire kind of attitude perhaps and that you know they haven't got anybody allocated to them from HR to answer their questions to tell them what's going on to update them as to what's happening um, and of course as soon as we don't do those things the relationship with that individual is damaged at that point quite early in the process um, and possibly irreparably so um, you know if you take nothing else away from today it would be around communications promptly and more than you think you need to do because we get into these things on a fairly regular basis so this is all normal to us um of course for the individuals this is the first time in their lives that they've ever come across um this territory so they need kind of more information and they need more explaining than we might otherwise um do when we suspend people I'm sorry, I'm going to have to let the dog out. She's just going to cry. <laughs> there we are. No more whinging, dash hanged. Um, um, Anna, on that quick pause, I've got another question. Yeah. In the chat box I can read out. Um, but yeah, so Kate said, how do you recommend best documenting the decision making around whether or not to suspend? Okay. Um, I've actually created a risk assessment document. Um, and it's kind of got all the factors that you might think about in any situation where you might need to suspend. Um, and it sort of takes you through, you know, what are we worried about here? Is it gross misconduct? Is it interfering with witnesses? Is it the potential that the person might damage the evidence? Is there, you know, a safeguarding issue if that's relevant? You know, all the different things that might feed into the decision. Um, with the ability then for the organisation to say sort of yes or no to those things and just document then at the end what their decision is and why and also a timescale for review of that decision um, so that if we end up in a long drawn out process we can review are the reasons why we did or didn't suspend still relevant or has something changed in that process because things do you know goalposts do move maybe we start an investigation into one thing and then other people start to hear about it and come forward with other things and all of a sudden it's a very different that very different picture um what i was just going to say around suspension is um quite often the person who's suspended is is in limbo as regards exactly what it is that they're accused of so quite often we say to somebody you know we're investigating an allegation of sexual harassment but we don't go into what that is um that can lead individuals to spend a lot of sleepless nights reviewing you know their entire employment <laughs> with the organization trying to work out 
what did I do? When did I do it? Um, and I think it is fairer if we can be more specific um, around roughly what we might be talking about. It doesn't doesn't need to be the allegations that you take to a disciplinary hearing yet, because you haven't done the investigation yet. But I think a bit more meat on the bones can be fairer to the individual who is um, potentially accused of um, of something. Investigations, I would say, is an area where I sometimes see weaknesses from employers, mainly just around have we got anyone with the time, and this is the big challenge, to be doing this properly, um, rather than you know dumping it on somebody who's really good but they're trying to do 45 other things all at the same time because it does take time those of you I know a few of you are on the the call today who um maybe are HR uh independent HR people who go in and do these sorts of things and um you know it can be substantial work so have we got the people with the right skills do we actually need to allocate a few people to doing this um, together to speed the process up? Or actually, do we need to be honest and say, whilst we've got the skills, we haven't got the time. So let's bring in somebody who can just devote uh, that resource to it. Um, obviously, there's a cost involved in doing that. So it's weighing those things up. But um, the useful thing about bringing in somebody from outside is uh, you've got that impartiality often the person that you're bringing in it's the you know the first time anybody's met that person um, so they are genuinely uh, objective and have to get to know um, the organization and its jargon and things uh, whilst doing it. One of the things that people will do when they bring a complaint is they have a bit of a emotional splurge on paper. Uh, it's a bit like the lid coming off a bottle of fizzy pop. Um, and there will be lots of emotional language about how horrific something has been. And you have to kind of search through um, the stream of consciousness to try and pick up, OK, what actually are they saying has happened here? Let's break it down. So if the allegations are that on a particular occasion X, Y, Z happened, let's break it down into X and Y and Z, because there may be evidence of one of those, but not of the other two. Um, and we need to investigate each one of those things. And by doing that, you can find actually you end up with quite a lot of things to investigate. Uh, but at least you've got a structure then um, to go away and ask what the witnesses um, about. Quite often the person won't have necessarily said who else was there or when this happened or given you lots of the information that you would otherwise want. So probably you're going to have an initial meeting with that person to find that information out from them um, and at least come away then with a, a starting point as to who the relevant witnesses um, are going to won't going to be. Um, we need to try and do this as quickly as we can. Um, there's always a tension here. 
you know, the, the complainant will be wanting you to have done it yesterday. Um, you have to live in the real world where people have holidays and, you know, business trips and important meetings. And, you know, you're juggling everything um, to try and get uh, to it. What I would say is that delay potentially gives a complainant a fresh claim. So we'll come on and talk about victimisation claims. Um, delay can be something that gives them ammunition. So we want to try and keep people up to date as to why there might be a delay, for example. Um, had a recent uh, issue or last year where somebody raised a grievance in April and they weren't interviewed about it until August. That's just too long. Um, so, you know, at least get the, the ball rolling by interviewing the, the individual. We also need to think quite quickly about what other documents we might need to see. These days it is, you know, phone records and CCTV and notes that have been made in teams and, you know, lots of other sources and perhaps just the traditional emails and, and, and things like that that we need to be thinking of. One of the bumps that you might find along the way might be around witness cooperation. So one of the cases that I've just been dealing with, um, one of the key witnesses was obviously quite frightened for her own position because the person who was accused was the most senior person in the organisation. So she had a genuine fear, if I stick my head above the parapet, am I going to be for the high jump? So there had to be quite a lot of um, reassurance and uh, dealing with, with that one. Um, you can deal with some of that in advance with having, like I say, some kind of frequently asked questions document for witnesses that addresses that sort of um, issue. Um, I've also, in one of the cases that I've been dealing with recently, had um, accusations from the um, complainant that obviously other people have become aware there's an investigation going on. Now they are excluding me in some way. I am being um, left out in the workplace. People aren't talking to me, that kind of um, response. Again, if that was happening, that could be giving that person a secondary claim in addition to their sexual harassment claim, potentially. So quite quickly, you need to jump on those kind of allegations. Um, in the particular case that um, I was dealing with, the line manager um, was able to say, well, I've not witnessed anything. You know, I'm there every day in the team and I haven't witnessed any inappropriate behaviour towards you. Um, you know, the person hadn't been any more specific, really, so there wasn't anything specific we could investigate. Um, sometimes that might be just the paranoia of no one's talking to me. Well, actually, it's just everybody's busy. It's not that they're ignoring you. It's just they've got their heads down doing their job. Um, so you sometimes see those issues. Um, I've just got another question for you, yeah. Anna. Um, could you please advise as to what would be best practice when an employee makes a sexual harassment complaint about another employee, but this incident happened off site and alcohol was consumed? Okay. 
Um, so I'm going to assume it wasn't a work organised event. If it is a genuinely outside of work, nothing to do with the employer. Um, you have to start thinking, well, does this impinge on the workplace or not? Or is this something genuinely outside? I would say if you've got an employee who is complaining about it, um, saying it is affecting their relationship in work in some way, then we need to at least be exploring that because we've got at least one of those two people saying it's a problem and saying that they are feeling potentially unsafe in some way. And we've seen a lot, haven't we, through the, the pandemic in terms of the importance of psychological safety and, you know, when we were all worrying about whether we get COVID every time we went to the supermarket. I think if we've got people who are in the workplace who are feeling unsafe in some way, then we need to at least think about looking at that rather than doing perhaps what we would have done 20 years ago, which is gone all oh, is outside of work, it's nothing to do with us. I mean, it may be that in talking to the individual about it, they feel able to then tell the other person that they're upset about something and deal with it, you know, outside of work potentially. But I think you'd want to at least start thinking about it rather than just going, oh, it's outside of work, so it's nothing to do with us. Um, obviously, it's going to come down to the facts of a, a particular case. For the uh, individual who's brought a complaint, you may find pretty quickly they become too stressed to be in work, um, particularly if you haven't suspended the other person and they don't like it. Um, they may well start arguing you should be paying me full pay to be um, at home. Instinctively, I'm against that because that's opening a blank checkbook. Um, why would why would we want to potentially start something where we could be paying them for a long period of time um, without any output? Um, obviously, whatever the normal sickness um, procedures are should apply to any sickness. So if the norm is statutory sick pay only, then potentially that person would get statutory sick pay um, only. Obviously, in this day and age, we can think about actually is working from home a measure that we might take to uh, temporarily, perhaps whilst we're in this um, period of, of doing the investigation. Obviously, that depends on whether that's possible or useful or um, lots of different things, but might be something um, worth thinking about. And sorry, one more question. Yeah. Um, so what's your advice uh, when it gets to the point when you've got it's one employee says against what the other has said? So we're into the evidence, aren't we? Um, what I'd recommend, it ties in really nicely, actually, with this slide. So we've we've started off our investigation breaking down what the complaints are into bits if you like. And we've then been away and we've tried to investigate those things and, and gather what evidence we can. Um, it can be really useful to go to your policies, to go to definitions that ACAS use if you haven't got them in your own policies. 
to go to what the legislation says and have that at the beginning of your investigation report as a what are we looking for here reminder and sort of work back from that i see a lot of reports that don't do that um so that's something you can easily um build in and, and remedy um in in the future then taking each of those allegations that you've broken that complaint down into what evidence have we got for or against so it may be that we have got one person saying one thing and the other denying that that happened is there anything that other witnesses bring to the table that can break that deadlock um so for example i've had a case where um an individual uh came forward in a factory and said i've heard that there's this going on i don't know if it's relevant but i did once see this now that witness was somebody who wouldn't normally say boo to a goose so the employer was happy they didn't have any kind of agenda um it, there was a feeling that what that person said then bolstered the person who was complaining um like i said earlier you might have somebody who witnessed not the whole thing that's been complained about but something similar or part of it that again makes you come down in in favour if you like of the person who has brought the complaint um there may also be an attitude that well if you are denying it well you would say that wouldn't you if you if you were accused of something and you and and you you know didn't want to be found guilty of it you're going to say it never happened um you know certainly when i act for individuals where they have got themselves into trouble i will say to them don't just bareface deny that this ever happened if you did send that text message or you did send that email because of course there's going to be evidence of that you're much better off admitting that you have done these things but setting the context um so for example you know i thought i was on safe territory because this person was sending me similar messages or that was our relationship that we had we made those kind of jokes you know you you can put the context around it rather than just sort of deny everything because i think a decision maker is going to be much more likely to take a rounded view and have sympathy for somebody who has admitted well you know yes i have done this but you know it was for that reason or i haven't done that than somebody who just deny deny i haven't done anything wrong um best reports are the balanced ones that tease out uh, the sorts of strengths and weaknesses if you like and um, one of the things that potentially an employer is concerned about obviously is um potentially admitting liability if there is a problem um i think you're in a stronger position if you do that if you say yes you know that it looks as though this has happened and this is what we're going to do about it then try and just sweep everything under the carpet um 
you can then you know set out what you're going to do to maybe provide training to take disciplinary action whatever it is um to um ensure that it doesn't happen again and um that you've addressed the the particular issue you'll be in a lot more stronger position with the tribunal than just um trying to say there is no evidence when actually um a reasonable person looking at the evidence in front of you would have suggested actually you know there is an issue an issue here so sometimes it's about saying look we can't prove that this person for example in one of the things i've been dealing with recently we can't prove that this person touched your breasts because nobody witnessed that but what seems to have happened is there does seem to have been inappropriate behavior because um there were witnesses that saw this person touch your knee or have this person has touched people's knees and has made suggestive comments so we can find in favor of those things but we can't say that the touching happened because we didn't have any evidence of it if that makes sense as with all um grievances the individual who's brought the complaint ought to have the opportunity to have their say uh, in some kind of meeting with whoever is the decision maker in your process. Um, obviously, they need to see the documentation to be able to prepare to do that. So at some point, you're going to have to show them the investigation with all the witness statements. Now, sometimes organisations will decide that there are good reasons to anonymise witness statements so that they are witness A, witness B, witness C rather than named individuals. Um, ultimately, potentially, you're going to be in a position where you're trying to get people to all work together. So that may be relevant if naming people could be inflammatory and cause problems and break relations moving forward uh, but tribunals do prefer there to be names um, and it makes the decision maker maker's job more difficult because if they read the paperwork and they decide oh the investigator hasn't asked witness b this question they're going to need to go away and make uh, take measures to make sure that person is asked that question that they get the answer back uh, before they can make a, a decision so it sort of elongates your process a little bit potentially. Um, um, Anna I've just got a question yeah. relating to the last slide on the reports um, yeah. so from Rebecca should the report make a recommendation on the next steps are you no action or disciplinary GMC or remain balanced and present the info for the impartial manager to decide? Yeah, now different organisations have different rules on this. I've always been a big fan of the investigator making recommendations because ultimately the decision maker doesn't have to follow them. You know, they are the one making the decision um, and can decide something different. Um, but at least if you've got the recommendations in there, then, you know, it's almost like two heads being better than one. Um, and it shows uh, the tribunal that as well, potentially. There are some organisations where that is completely forbidden in their processes, where they will say the investigator is not allowed to do that. 
um, and it does just have to be um, purely um, from the uh, the decision maker. But that's that's more rare that I see that. Um, certainly, if you've got an outside investigator, you know, part of the reason you're paying them is to get that um, from them. So, yeah, yeah, I would include that. What I'd say about our meeting with the individual is um, it can feel a little bit that once all the work's gone into the investigation that we've done, um, once those recommendations have been made that, you know, that we know where we're going with something. Um, part of it is around that justice being seen to be done thing. Um, so it's about that it, the individual feeling like they've had their say and that they've been listened to. Um, so if you are a decision maker, don't rush this stage. Um, you know, particularly in the notes that we're going to come on to next, let's document how long the meeting took and devote as much time um, as the individual needs to it so that we can show, you know, we've done that and they've had that opportunity to um, to raise anything that they want to. After that, we're going to be writing to them with some kind of outcome letter. And this is where it's really important that it is the decision maker that does the letter. Uh, there have been a number of cases where HR have got into difficulty because they've put words into mouths or changed outcomes. Um, so there's nothing wrong with support, uh, but we need to be clear that that individual has made the decision. So it may be them uh, putting down their thoughts and then you as HR putting some structure around it. Uh, it might be the other way around, but that it needs to be that individual who's making the decision rather than HR via the back door. Because people do ask for things like, you know, document properties uh, and things like that by way of disclosure in the employment tribunal. And so you can get find, found out if you have been manipulating um, things. Talking about the notes of, of meetings, um, it doesn't have to be a 100% sort of script of absolutely everything that was said. Um, I think there's a tendency sometimes if you're taking notes for the employer that you write down more of what the employer said and less of what the employee said. Um, try and keep it balanced. I tend to actually get my notebook and fold the page over so that I've got two halves of a page and it makes it easier then to write, you know, what one person said on one side and what the other person's response to that was on the other. Um, something I picked up in tribunal many years ago, so you might want to try it. Um, I say what not to include. I, I wouldn't panic about having to get minutes signed off. I see in tribunal bundles acres of pages focused on emails back and forward trying to get the damn meeting minutes agreed. And lots of objections from individuals. You you haven't properly put this down and this is what was said. And if people want to tell you you've missed something in the notes, just attach a copy of what they've said to your notes, file it. It's done then. Don't get sucked into 99 emails about it because it will make your tribunal bundle huge. And ultimately, the tribunal are not interested in any of that. Um, 
quite often individuals will make a mountain out of minutes and um a huge song and dance about it and i can tell you now the amount of tribunal time spent looking at minutes is 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 uh not a lot uh actually sometimes there might be one bit that's really really important but not that often um i wouldn't include that we've taken legal advice on this subject um because it makes it look like you know you're following the legal advice rather than making your own decision as well um when it comes to the outcome letter i think it'd be really important to say go back to the that definition of harassment for example so if somebody is trying to say i i'm complaining of uh that and you know talk through the weighing up that you've done as decision maker why you've come to the decision that you have rather than just a one line you know find in your favor we don't find in your favor follow that balance that you have in the investigation report well we can't evidence this but we can evidence that uh kind of balance um approach um you know again rather than a sort of deny 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 um usually the truth is somewhere in, in in the middle um and i think if you can be balanced and admit to fault um or even liability in some cases where something happened it's a one off you know does it matter if we admit liability about that one off because it's probably going to be worth you know 500 pound to 1000 pound um let's do that um and include perhaps an apology that something has happened try and restore the relationship um talk about what things you're going to do to um improve things going forward the recommendations that are being made um make overtures to them about what we can do to improve things whether that is mediation in some cases um see it depends on the the situation you know you wouldn't necessarily submit somebody who's suffered from huge harm at the hands of an individual to a mediation with that person um but you know at a low level where there has been miscommunication uh, between individuals it, it might be appropriate here you're likely to face the individual who's brought a complaint wanting to know what the disciplinary outcome is of the person that they've complained about um obviously we need to think about uh data protection there and and and, and not um giving somebody else's uh personal data away so we're probably just going to be confining it to a reassurance that yes we are going to be taking disciplinary action you know we can reassure you that we're doing that we don't need to go into um the detail um on it obviously we need to be consistent what we've done in other cases when we're when we're doing that so we need to think about um that too um 
One of the organisations that I have been working with recently, let's just say I got the vibes very much from the beginning that it probably didn't matter what was going to be found. Ultimately, there would not be a sacking um, at the end of the process. And one of the concerns that I gently tried to raise with relevant people through that process was it's not just about the person who's brought the complaint other people are looking in on this now other people were at the particular event when the particular thing happened I know we say it's confidential but everyone's talking about this and actually if you don't take appropriate action what messages do other people take from that? Um, so you have to think about it from all different angles as well. Hopefully you've kept somebody more senior to deal with the appeal. And by the time you get to the appeal, it can all feel like, oh, we don't have to go around the houses again, do we? Um, I always view appeals as an opportunity. You've probably heard me say that before, because if we have messed up somewhere along the line and the individual does want to complain about some kind of procedural weakness, it's our opportunity to correct it. So if they say you haven't asked witness G the right questions, um, then, you know, we can go away and we can ask those questions and see if it would have made any difference to the outcome. Um, quite often, it won't have made any difference to the outcome, um, but we need to be seen to go through that. One of the things that a judge will always ask in tribunal when it comes to appeals, and if you do appeals, um, be aware that you're likely to be asked this, is what kind of appeal is it? So are you just looking at two or three um sort of narrow issues that the individual has raised in their letter of appeal or are you having a full rehearing and if you like um starting from scratch uh, and considering everything uh, again because i want to know which one of those approaches you were taking and obviously that will depend on the particular circumstances as to what the answer should be to that um, if we are going to bring action against an individual, then all your disciplinary stuff kicks in now. Um, so they've got to be aware of the allegations and we'll see a copy of the investigation report as well so that they can attack it if they want to in the disciplinary hearing. Uh, so actually working out what the allegations are will be critical. Um, and there's more than one way to skin the cat when it comes to uh, allegations. We'll be into you know normal disciplinary hearing rules like being accompanied, um, having the opportunity to have their say and thinking about what the right penalties are. Um, again in the case law um, there have been cases where employers have anonymised who has accused somebody. So you have been accused by employees A, B, C and D of sexual harassment 
of the following kind. Um, there have been cases where individuals have then sought disclosure in the tribunal process as to who witness A, B, C and D are. Um, tribunal is always going to have to ask itself, what is the relevance of disclosing um, who the individuals are or actually does the employee still get a fair process and fair opportunity to answer what's been um, alleged with that kind of anonymity so obviously it depends on the particular case as to what they decide um, but it's not automatic that the individual gets to know uh, their identity. Um, Anna, would you speak with the perpetrator as part of the investigation meeting, like as a potential witness statement? Yes, yes, yes. So they will have, in all likelihood, given their version of events. Yeah. And um, I've just got another question here. Is it a data breach if we tell the complaint that the matter's escalated to a disciplinary, especially if it was against one individual? Um, they've just put an example. We normally say appropriate action has been taken, but not give them the detail. Is that OK? Yeah, yeah. So I think. It, it is choosing a generic form of words that doesn't tell them whether it's a warning or a dismissal or a, even an informal discussion or training or something. You don't have to tell the detail. You have to reassure them that action has been taken. So, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously it's going to depend on the evidence and what the facts are as to what the appropriate outcome should be. I think there can be a it's sexual harassment, therefore it's a dismissal kind of a um, an attitude. No, all the usual what penalty is appropriate to these particular circumstances will apply. Of course, um, the test for you is have we got a genuine belief that something has happened? Have we done a reasonable investigation so that we've got a genuine belief uh, that's reasonable that for us to hold that belief. Have we conducted a reasonable investigation? All the Birchill kind of principles are going to kick in there. Um, obviously, if we have set out to starve that we have a zero tolerance policy, um, then we do have to think if we're not going to take serious action over things, why? Um, you know, what's the reasoning for that um, and again it will become very fact specific so there can be lots of debate and wrangling over what the right outcome should be in these cases um, like I said that's one of the things that makes it quite challenging uh, at the beginning as I said earlier um, there is a risk of victimization claims um, coming out alongside potentially sexual harassment claims under the Equality Act. Um, Victimisation being a specific kind of discrimination claim where the person says, I've done a protected act, so I've complained about sexual harassment, and then these other things have happened to me since. And Anything can be a detriment when it comes to victimisation. So delay is classic. Being moved. I've been the one who've, who's been moved. So I've raised a complaint and I've had to change jobs would be another classic one. 
Um, so just be aware of the spectre of victimisation claims um, rolling around. I've already covered off taking disciplinary action. Um, there are a very small number of cases where accusations have been felt to be brought vexatiously. Uh, I'm thinking there of, um, you know, genuinely consensual relationship has broken down and there's some kind of revenge going on. Um, and, and we've got some kind of proof of that. Um, really hard to evidence. You're probably better off just relying on that we've done an investigation and we haven't found any evidence of the things that you've complained of and shut it off that way than actually sort of punishing anybody for taking, uh, for making vexatious complaints. Um, obviously, outcomes, recommendations might include further training. Uh, it's surprising how often I get brought in just after there's been an incident somewhere. And of course, tribunal would expect you to do that uh, to improve things for the future. Mediation, we obviously mentioned earlier. But essentially, there will come a point, um, perhaps for the complainant, where they have a bit of a crunch time, where they have to decide, actually, is what has happened so bad that I can't work here anymore? Because um, you may have backed them into a corner by doing all the right things and, um, you know, dealing with the now we all need to get back to work um, where they are in that corner and they have to decide, am, am I out at this point? Um, you may get the approach for a settlement agreement then uh, you may have had the approach for a settlement agreement a lot earlier, but I would say get to that point, deal with it all before um, you start any negotiations. Otherwise, potentially, the individual will feel they've got you against the ropes and that the organisation is guilty and that, you know, you do need to get your checkbook out in, in a major way. Um, whereas if you've dealt with everything and you've got people into that corner, then uh, the value of their claim potentially is a lot lower. Um, if you've done it all right, it can be quite difficult for somebody to to then create a constructive dismissal um, situation. Um, it may be that you've got a situation where somebody's saying they can't work with somebody else um, going forward. And then we're into, have we tried mediation? Have we looked at alternatives? Are, is there somewhere else that they could move? Sometimes the answer to that is no. And ultimately we end up in a dismissal for some other substantial reason, territory, um, as, as, a, as a way through that. But we've got to be careful that we're not just taking detrimental action against the one individual because then they'll claim that it's victimisation compared to their other colleague. Some of the things that we can do to um, reduce the risk would be around obviously looking at where we're communicating about this. So are we telling everybody who joins us? Are we reminding people on a regular basis? 
to managers understand what their responsibilities are, when they should step in if they see something? Are we reminding people before the Christmas party, that dreadful email that we see every Christmas? Um, you know, they'd be looking for all those things. Have we got a relationship at work policy? Can feel a little bit American and that we're staying straying into territory that perhaps traditionally we haven't. But um, if there are problems, um, we might wish that we had had one. So um, worth thinking about if we at least have some guardrails or boundaries. Do we go down the route of having some kind of anti-harassment champions within the business, people who are trained up that people want to flag an issue with, that there's somewhere they can go with that? Some organisations have those. Some will have anonymous reporting channels, part of some whistleblowing hotlines where people could raise things if they didn't want to do it openly. And are we monitoring um, any patterns or, you know, sickness absence in a particular area or maybe where settlement agreements have arisen so that we can spot maybe something going on? Um, I mentioned people might want to um, at some point in the process say they want a way out. Um, And it can be quite scary having a letter from somebody saying, I think I've you know, suffered se sexual harassment. I'm going to get hundreds of thousands of pounds if I go to the employment tribunal. Practical reality is they're probably not going to get that much. Um, and awards are still um, fairly modest. Um, I've just settled a sexual harassment claim for um, less than six months salary so that will give you um, an idea as to where I might be might be thinking on things um, so like I said if you're going to get into that territory you want to have done all the good things on the open process so that you're in a strong position when you are negotiating um, one of the big changes coming out of the Me Too movement uh, is around non-disclosure agreements. And of course, settlement agreements do not stop somebody from being able to raise something with the police. So I have had cases in the past where the employment position has been resolved and even years later, the person has gone to the police about something. So anyone involved needs to understand that that um, could happen and we shouldn't be doing anything to try and restrict the, the individual from their rights in that regard. Uh, indeed, you may have noticed settlement agreement drafting changing um, in terms of uh, gagging clauses uh, and that's because our solicitors uh, professional rules have been amended post Harvey Weinstein um, so that it's really clear in settlement agreements the things that people can still do. Um, so just be aware of whether if you're using agreements that they are up to date in that regard. Um, there is um, some legislation that I, I referenced on the slide earlier going through uh, at the moment. Um, one of the clauses in it will 
bolster what we've already got in the Equality Act uh, with a positive duty on employers to prevent sexual harassment. So lots of attention on that. Um, a bit like breaches of the ACAS code, what is included in that legislation is that if you haven't done that, or tribunal isn't satisfied, then an award of 25% more can be made because of the failure um, to comply. So this feeling that, you know, it's worked for ACAS code compliance um, as, a, as a mechanism to encourage good behaviour from employers um, and uh, deter uh, so that they're going to apply the same thinking when it comes to this area. Um, I don't think it particularly changes where we are already in the sense that any decent employer is already trying to prevent uh, this from happening in the workplace. But the interesting thing is that the Commission for Human Rights, <coughs> excuse me, would be able to get more heavily involved like they just have with McDonald's, uh, where McDonald's had to commit to communicating their zero tolerance policy, giving training, um, support around managers to handle it, um, and monitoring sort of progress, taking the temperature amongst staff as to whether things was were improving. Uh, and of course, the uh, commission will be going back and checking in with the McDonald's to see if it's do doing all those things that it's it's promised to do. So I wouldn't be sort of panicking about, um, you know, the, the landscape uh, is all going to be different. But I would be starting to think about, do we need to up our training? Have we done stuff recently on this subject area? Have we got a lot of new employees that we won't have captured? You know, those sorts of questions um, to just think, do we need to bolster something um, in this area? And I think it's about people understanding what could be deemed as unacceptable. And I think there are a, a generation of men who have grown up in sort of one workplace norm, if you like, where they have witnessed people say things or do things that has kind of felt like it's fabric of work. And to those people, it can feel as though the goalposts have now moved. Um, I think lots of people have read the memo on that, but there are people who wouldn't necessarily realise that saying to somebody, I don't know, that you look really pretty in your LinkedIn photo is potentially a problem. Um, or that um, maybe something like uh, when communicating with a member of staff, you know, saying yes to something or giving somebody permission to do something, saying something to them like, you know, I've done this for you. What are you going to do for me? Um, in a 
kind of you know I've made you a cup of tea you're going to make me a cup of coffee kind of a way could be interpreted by some people as actually um, misusing power in some way Um, and that the way something's meant isn't necessarily the way it comes across to somebody so it's you know does your training tell people about that so that they go away from it understanding um perhaps how to amend their behavior so i think we are in an interesting kind of transition period where there are people who perhaps haven't got the memo um in the workplace still um any more questions james shall i yes i have one from earlier that i was saving for the end just okay quite a nice uh like summary question um but when you're putting together the sexual harassment policy like what's the best starting point um and where you go from there and also potentially if you've got examples that we can send people after the event that would be really useful yeah i mean the majority of policies that I see are still very much, here's the definition from the legislation. And that's fine amongst HR because we kind of know. But actually, I quite like, um, for example, as does social media policy, um, rather than just saying, don't bring us into disrepute, gives examples. So, of things that people might publish online and and then explains why that's not appropriate so spells it out for people and I think you you could probably do a policy that's much more bringing it to life with anecdotes than just giving the definition if that makes sense but I haven't I haven't seen the employer who's done it yet but I think you could and it might be more valuable to people. Um, yeah. Um, I've got another question um, that's just come in at the end as well. Um, so what would your recommendation be if your investigation comes back as inconclusive, like potentially not enough evidence? Um, however, the claimant is now stating that they do not want to work with the individual again. Um, and you've stated earlier that in some cases you can dismiss due to some other substantial reason. However, would this be the perpetrator or the claimant? And would this apply to the example above? It's quite a long one. So it is in the chat box if you want to go back. And so, no, so I think I, I think so. Let's assume we haven't taken any disciplinary action here because we didn't have enough evidence of, of anything. Um, we then have an outcome to the complainant that is along those lines um we are then signaling to them you've now got to carry on doing your job because that's what you're employed to do um initially i would be communicating with them about i know you found this upsetting this is the support that we can give you around the that side of things so if you've got eap programs with counseling and those sorts of things um but signalling, no, you do have to get on with your job um, because I think that does back people into a corner of, well, am I going to get my head down and get on with my job now or am I going to go off and leave and go somewhere else? Um, if they carried on saying, well, I, I'm off on the sick, I can't come back until you've done this, 
then I think you'd be into ordinary sickness management around, well, this is your job. Um, you know, we can make these phased return um, measures, but ultimately you do have to get back to doing that job. Now, if you've got other vacancies, then that might be a point at which you start saying, if you don't want to do that job, here are the other vacancies that are available. Um, you could put your hat in the ring for those. Um, you know, sometimes that's going to be applicable, sometimes it's not. But kind of putting the onus very much on the individual that they do need to get back and do their job. So it'd be quite a long way down the line before we'd get to the this, you know, we've tried everything. The procedure around some other substantial reason dismissal is is going to be, you know, showing a judge that we've tried everything before we've got to this point. So, you know, have we tried mediation? Have we tried looking for alternatives? Have we tried to get this person back to doing that job um, before before they they go? Now, if you've got two people that I don't know have to work very closely together, and they are both refusing to work with each other. Um, potentially you could dismiss them both. Um, but usually in real life, you get one person that's being more objectionable than the other one. Um, and it can be either way around. Um, you know, it could be the complaint, the person who was accused saying, I, you know, I no longer trust this person. I can never work in there um vicinity again because how do I know they're gonna not make up more rubbish about me um so it can come come both ways so you'd want to look into every alternative before you got to that dismissal that's everything from oh no I've got another one <laughs> Um, so given the context at the start of the presentation regarding potential reasons for increased cases, has the shift towards increased agile home working had any impact on the type of cases that have or are likely to come forward in future? I think where it might be relevant is evidentially, you know, if there are, there's a facility to record Teams and Zoom and things, aren't there? um or to not know somebody's recording you so i wonder if we will see more people catching people out that way um i did have a situation where somebody was in a zoom meeting the others thought she'd left the room on a tea break but it was still mics on and she overheard the other people having a nasty conversation about her. Um, so you can see how people might make that mistake. Um, so that's where I would say I, um, the, the stuff that I'm still getting at the moment is very much where people are working together and um, it, it, it has been often around outside of work events where alcohol is involved you know the summer barbecue a manager's house the christmas party the or going to a conference and getting drunk um it, there's been a bit of a theme around that recently rather than hybrid or or home working um but i do wonder if people not being as used to working physically with each other 
means people forget the rules of engagement in work. Um, we see it with text, don't we, and WhatsApp and stuff. We're so used to just, you know, chucking off a message to our mates that we've become a lot less formal in work and, you know, emojis are creeping in. And 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 so that blurring of lines, I think, means that sometimes people make behaviour mistakes because of that, because it is less formal. They forget that they're on a works device when they're sharing, I don't know, pornographic pictures or, you know, making if the meth is anything to go by misogynistic jokes about, you know, service users or whatever. So, yeah, I think the informality is probably more of a danger rather than homeworking. Um, and from all of us, um, we just want to say enjoy the rest of your days. Thank you very much. See you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye.